Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. morning. Welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we gather here today in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to exalt Him, to praise Him, to give honor and reverence to You, and to enjoy the fellowship of Your Spirit, the Spirit that You have so freely given to those who have placed their confident trust in the Savior You have provided. We pray that today, Father, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. Thank You for Your love with which You have befriended us through the Savior, through the Christ, Jesus our Lord. Bless our time together today. 
speak to us by your Spirit and encourage us in love. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Our call to worship this morning comes once again from Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus is speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the peoples of all the nations do the same thing. Be perfect, be fully developed and mature, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, most of you here are old enough to remember a TV show, Rod Serling. The Twilight Zone. Consider if you will. You remember how he would start out? Consider if you will. A group of Christians who are so focused on themselves and their own selfish interests that they fail to love one another. They fail to put each other first. They fail to prefer one another above themselves. Imagine, if you will, because that is a group that Paul has been writing to here in his letter, 1 Corinthians. A group of Christians who had been blessed with so many gifts of the Spirit, but it was their selfishness that was getting them all off track. Everything was out of focus. We saw how bad it was in chapter 11. It was so bad that even when they got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, it was all wrong. Paul basically said, when you all come together to drink the cup and eat the bread, I'm here to tell you, it's not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating and observing. Not the way you folks are doing it. There's selfishness. Their self-centeredness had gotten everything wrong. And he had to address it. But it didn't just stop there. It even extended to the way that they were doing ministry. And think about the word ministry. It just means to serve. We say that we come here to have a church service on Sunday mornings. But really, church service is something that's supposed to happen seven days a week. As the body of Christ serves each other with the gifts that the Spirit of Christ has given to the church for service. That's what service is. Serving one another in the love of Christ. But they were getting that wrong. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul had to address it. We can't be exactly sure what was going on, but it sure seemed like 
many of these Christians in Corinth were looking at their own gifts that they had received, their own gifts of the Spirit, and they were so infatuated with their own personal gift that they weren't even using that gift to build up and serve the body of Christ. It's almost like it was a trophy that they put on the shelf, something that they got down and and admired, looked at their own reflection in it, but they weren't using it to build up and encourage their brothers and sisters. And so Paul had to address it. He talked about the gifts. And then he said, there's something more important here that you have to understand. I'm going to show you an even better way. More important than which gift you have received. More important than comparing your gift to someone else's gift to try to figure out if yours is better than theirs. More important than that is the way that you use the gift. And Paul says the way is the way of love. And we're going to talk about it. The love of Christ is the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're beginning in verse 1. Paul says, if I speak human or angelic languages, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think about this. You could put a drum set. You could put all kinds of musical instruments on a stage and let a chimpanzee go to work on them. And it would make all kinds of sound. There would be lots of clanging and crashing and banging. There'd be all kinds of notes. But it wouldn't mean anything. What makes it meaningful is information, a pattern a design flowing through all of those musical instruments. You need to have someone who's got musical abilities to take those instruments and make it sound harmonious and pleasing. I really think that I could do about as well as a chimpanzee when it comes to musical instruments. I could make a lot of noise, but without the information, the design, the ability, it's just noise. The Apostle Paul says you can have... The gift of languages or tongues, as it's familiarly called. You could even speak in angelic languages. Apparently, there's such a thing. But if it is not guided, directed, and infused by love, and by love we mean seeking the good of another person, even at your own personal expense. If it's not guided by love, it's just a bunch of noise. Love is the information, it's the design, it's the way that brings meaning to the gift. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, just a quick pause, remember the gift of prophecy, it may be included telling the future, but that was just a component of what prophecy was. Prophecy was speaking the word of the Lord to the Lord's people. And remember, back in the days of the apostles, there was not a completed New Testament that they could open up to. They couldn't say, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That didn't exist. It was still being revealed by the prophets of the Lord Jesus. 
His apostles and his prophets were speaking the word of the Lord to God's people. And God's people were hearing the word and they were recognizing it. And they were saying, yes, that is the spirit of God speaking through these chosen and appointed prophets and apostles. Paul says, I could have that gift of prophecy. I could understand all mysteries that God is revealing to his people. I could have all kinds of Bible knowledge. If it's not guided and directed by love for my brother and sister, it doesn't mean anything. He says, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body to be burned, or another way this phrase could be translated, if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Apparently, you can do all sorts of right things. But if you're doing it without the motivation of love, love for God and love for your brother and sister, if it's not driven by love, it's noise, it's empty, it's meaningless. And so the apostle wants to talk about love for just a little bit. We're in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Think about the patience and the, the kindness that the Lord himself has shown to us. That he's shown to you. Patience. He's long-suffering. He doesn't have a short fuse or a quick temper. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. That is, it doesn't seek its own interests. But if it recognizes that another has an interest or a need that comes into conflict with the self's interest or need, well, the self is instructed to take a back seat and to seek the interest or the well-being of the other. That's how love works. It's not irritable. It's not to say that a human being can't find something to be irritating and get irritated by it, but love, when it's active in a person's life and when it's being lived out, love teaches and instructs that person that being irritable with others is not the way of love. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. That's easy to do. I bet I could challenge each one of you to think back to a time that someone hurt you or offended you in some way. I bet you could recall it. I know I could. We're not to keep a record of that. Keep no record of wrongs. The Lord has not kept a record of wrongs against his people. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our iniquities from us. The Lord keeps no record of wrongs. Neither should we. 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is another way that that was put. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Here in the United States, we have a political climate that has two poles. You've got the left and you've got the right. You've got Republicans, you've got Democrats. And I know a lot of us fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. There's all kinds of independence too. But our political climate is guided by two poles, a left and a right. In this kind of climate, it's easy to find ourselves at each other's throats. And I'm just using this as an example. Especially if you go looking on social media, you can find lots of people passionately making their case for their political persuasion. It can even go so far that you can get excited when you see the other side, you know, the bad guys, maybe they're Democrats or maybe they're Republicans, but the bad guys, whoever they are for you, when you find them screwing up and doing wrong, that can get kind of exciting you can find a little bit of joy in their unrighteousness because they're proving themselves to be the scoundrels that they really are, right? Do you see how easy it can be to fall into that trap of rejoicing in unrighteousness? We can even do that in personal relationships. We can rejoice in the misfortunes that others experience because of their unrighteous decisions. Just understand, according to Paul, according to the Spirit, when we get our kicks out of those sorts of things, that's not love. Love rejoices in the truth, wherever the truth leads. Love bears all things. It's got strong arms, it's got broad shoulders, and it can hold up the weight of the world. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. Love never ends. There's no finish line for it. There's never a point at which we can say, there, I've done it. I've run my race. I've completed my course. I've done the love, and now I can hang it up, kick back, and put my feet up. No, we never find that finish line. Love never ends. The apostle now launches into some interesting territory that has caused confusion for a lot of us through the years. We're going to try to consider these things and understand it the best that we can. Paul says, but as for prophecies... Remember what prophecies are, speaking the Lord's word, speaking the word of the Lord, revealing it to God's people. He says, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, languages, communicating the good news of Christ to other people, groups who speak other languages, that ability to do that, he says, they will cease. They'll come to an end. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. 
Now, maybe some of you are already thinking about the question that I'm thinking of. I want to know, Paul, when? When is this that you're talking about? When will prophecy, revealing the word of the Lord to his people, when will that come to an end? Or um, communicating in other languages through the supernatural action of the Spirit, when will that come to an end, Paul? Or, or knowledge, when will that come to an end? I want to know. He says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. I do believe that he's speaking here as a first century believer in Jesus Christ, living during a time when this book has not been completed, living during a time when God is still actively revealing his truth, his word to his people through his apostles and prophets. Paul's living in that time, and he's speaking right then. He says, right now during this time, we know partially. We prophesy and reveal God's word to his people. Partially. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, that word perfect means fully developed, mature, complete, When that comes, the partial will come to an end. Okay, so now we have a partial answer. We wanted to know, when? When do these things come to an end? Paul, when when is this going to happen? And Paul says, well, when the perfect arrives, when that which is fully complete, fully developed, fully mature, when that arrives, then things like prophecy, that's going to come to an end, knowledge, you know, supernatural knowledge that is revealing truths about the gospel. You know, the same sort of epiphany that Peter had when Jesus said, "Uh, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed because you didn't come up with that on your own. My father revealed that. He revealed that knowledge to you. Okay, Paul says that kind of stuff's going to come to an end too when the perfect comes. He says, we're living during a time where we've got things partially. But there's going to be a time when it's complete. And then all of these things that are being used to bring it to completion will have served their purpose, run their course, and come to an end. But I still feel like we only have a partial answer. When, Paul? Well, when that which is complete comes. And now I say, okay, Paul, when's that? When does that which is complete and perfect, when does that arrive? Let's continue looking, see if we can figure it out. Verse 11. He says, when I was a child, he's just giving an example here to to make his point, an illustration. When I was a child... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. He's basically saying, we, the apostles and these first century Christians, we are living during a time where we don't have full and complete revelation yet. We're living during the time of the partial. Just like whenever you're a child, you think as a child, you reason as a child, but eventually you grow up and you stop thinking like a child. Well, hopefully... 
And, and they tell me that nowadays that happens somewhere between the ages of 30 and 40. But there's that time whenever the maturing process has reached its apogee and maturity has arrived. So it's just an example Paul's giving. Let's, let's see his next example. Verse 12. He says, for now, during the time in which he's living, he says, for now we see only a reflection or we see only indirectly as in a mirror. But then, that is when that which is perfect and complete, complete maturity has arrived, then we will see face to face. Right now, I know in part, but then when that which is perfect arrives, then I will know fully as I am fully known. Oh, Paul, are you speaking in riddles? It kind of feels like it. I kind of feel like I still don't have the answer. Like you, you keep inching me along, teasing me. You got the carrot on the stick and I'm almost ready to say, okay, I understand. But now I'm still questioning. What is it, Paul? And now you've come to the point where every other Christian who's ever considered this passage, they've come to the same point. You're right there with them. And we're trying to figure it out. And different Christians at different times have landed in different places on this. I'd just like to tell you a couple places that they've landed. And there's probably more than just a couple places. But these are the two, I think, most worthy of consideration. When the perfect comes, what is that, Paul? When does that happen? Some Christians have said, well... I think what Paul's talking about is this. When that first century era of Christianity had run its course, in other words, the time of the apostles when they were living here on earth as the representatives of Jesus, by the time they finished their ministry, they had given to us God's complete revelation. Everything that God wants us as followers of Jesus to know, to live our lives. Written down and bound up in a book. The New Testament, God's final word, because Jesus Christ is God's final word. And this is the revelation about him. This is the unveiling, taking taking the, the drapery off of the statue and revealing to everyone's eyes. Some Christians have said, that's what Paul's talking about. He was living during a time when God's revelation to his people was not completed, but it was getting there. It was getting close. And by the end of the apostolic era, the curtains had been drawn back and the complete and final revelation of God's word to his people was in the hands of God's people. At that point, would there be any need for the gift of prophecy in the sense of revealing God's word to his people? No, there wouldn't have been. It's complete. Would there have been any need for the gift of knowledge, like, like that gift that Peter received 
when he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Would there be any further need for knowledge gift? No, because it's complete. It's right here. And even the idea of the supernatural ability to speak in different languages, to communicate the gospel to that generation, would that be necessary any longer? No, because it's complete. Okay, so there's that one group of Christians that looks at it that way. And I think they make a pretty good case for that. It's reasonable anyway. But maybe, maybe you're looking at the text and you're saying, but I don't know, somehow that doesn't quite satisfy the entire equation for me. And if you're thinking that, I think I'm kind of thinking that too, just to let you know. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection. We see indirectly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. I don't know. It seems to me like as a Christian man, I still live my life with questions. There's a lot that I believe I understand very clearly from the scriptures, but if you're like me, you've probably got some questions too, don't you? Do you really feel like you've come to the point where the revelation is, or your understanding of the revelation is perfectly complete and fully mature? Do you feel like you're looking face to face? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm not. Sometimes I feel like I'm still looking a little bit indirectly, seeing an image in a mirror dimly. And that leads me to think that maybe what Paul is talking about, about living in the time of the partial, maybe that wasn't just the first generation Christians. Maybe that's us too. Maybe we live in the time of the partial. We're still seeing some things indirectly. If that is the case, I just want to offer up a little bit of hope. That's not always going to be the case. Each one of us, when we reach the end of our course in this life, I truly believe we are going to see directly. We are going to see face to face. And everything's going to be crystal clear. I kind of think that's when we reach the perfect, the fully developed. I kind of think that's when it comes. I have a very difficult time arguing against, against my Christian brothers who, who think that maybe it's referring to the completion of God's revealed word in the first century. And I, I kind of agree with them to a point, but I kind of think maybe there's a little bit more to it. Let's wrap up this chapter. Because it's a glorious way to wrap it up. The last half of verse 12, he says, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. When, Paul? At the end of the first century? No, I think there's more to it than that. As I am fully known. Now these three remain. He wants to mark out three things that are going to endure even after perfect, complete, full knowledge and understanding of the revelation of God and who He is, whenever I can stand on two feet, I doubt I'll be standing. I'll be on two knees, most likely. And I will be acknowledging that finally, at last, I know Him as He knows me. 
I, I think that moment will completely undo each and every one of us. But even once that moment arrives and the complete is here, the perfect has come. There's three things that carry on through. At that moment, there may not be need for prophecy anymore or knowledge anymore. You might not even need languages anymore because once you know him the way he knows you, what human tongue could ever express that, right? Those things won't even be relevant anymore. But there are three things that carry through beyond and they're worth noting. These three remain. Faith, hope, love. Faith, it's confident trust. Trust that is well placed. And there will never be a time in your existence in this life or the life to come when that is not going to be at the core of your experience and who you are standing before Almighty God. Faith. You will always need to place your confident trust in the Lord. It's not the thing that gets you through the race and across the finish line and you break the tape and you can say, there, I'm done with that. It's not like all the training that got you to that point. It's not like you can lay faith aside and say, confident trust got me to the finish line. No. There will always be a need for confident trust in the Lord. Hope. Hope is full assurance. A promise has been made and you take that promise because the person who made it is trustworthy and sure and worthy of confidence. Hope is full assurance of what has been promised. There's never going to be a time when that isn't a part of who you are standing before God. Love. Remember how we define love. Love is seeking the good of another, placing their interests above your own. Seeking their good, even if it comes at great personal expense. There's never going to be a time when that is not at the core of our experience with God. Remember, God defines himself by that last of the three. God is love. At the core of who he is, he defines himself as selfless love. Be mature, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus said it earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Grow up and be just like your dad. He defines himself by love. That's at the core of who he sees himself to be. He just wants his children to be like he is. Paul concludes this chapter with these simple words. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Remember, it's the engine that drives everything else. Without love at the core of who we are and what we do, we can make a lot of noise. We can even get a lot of things right. But in the end, 
it doesn't really matter or mean anything if it hasn't been motivated by love. In another place, the Apostle Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he proceeds in the book of Philippians to talk about how the Lord Jesus laid aside every privilege and every right, how he emptied himself and poured himself out, how he humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross, he humbled himself. And it was all because of his mindset, which was love. Be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And you will see him face to face. You will know him as you are known. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have in fact known us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our lying down. You know our rising up. There's nothing that can be hidden from you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us to even consider. But Father, you have provided a Savior. And in love, you are growing us up into sons and daughters who bear your image. Father, help us to operate in the same kind of love that you define yourself by, a selfless, giving love that seeks the good of others, even at great personal expense. There will never be a time where we can say, we did that, we can lay that aside. Father, faith, hope, and love, we will always need to place our confident trust in you. We will always rejoice in the full assurance that comes through the promises of one who is worthy of our trust. And we will always be learning how to love as you have loved us. Thank you for your great love. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you're on the right side of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that need not be a fearful thing for you. It'll be a glorious, happy thing. And you will know Him. And you will see Him face to face. Take comfort in that. Because God has expressed His love for you through the Savior that He sent. And the good news, the message that has been revealed about that Savior through His prophets and apostles. Have confidence in it. May the grace and peace of God our Father be with you all today, this week, and forever. Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.